Welcome to The Art of Growth, where we use the Enneagram and the best tools we can find to help you transform. I'm Jim Zartman, and we are in our season of 27 panels, where we are having panelists from every subtype in the Enneagram together, so you can hear from them and learn from them with us. This is in our Instincts series, and your subtype is the combination of your dominant instinct combined with your dominant type. And this week, we will have the one panels. And the first up is the self-preservational one panel. Before we get to that, the hub of all of our work is at www.theartofgrowth.org. And you can go there to take our instincts test. You can go there to figure out your instinctual sequence or instinctual stack, which is your dominant, your secondary or neutral, and your repressed or resisted or neglected instinct at the bottom there. And we get to know this because we are trying to move towards integration. That is the point. We have found this work around the integration of the instincts to be so transformational that we've dedicated an entire month to it in our next level group coaching program that is available to those who have gone through the first three month process where we go through the coaching steps of self-knowledge, self-observation and transformational habits. Understanding the instincts can also really help in understanding how people show up at work and in their jobs and even certain kinds of industries. So if you would be interested in having us train or coach in your organization, please reach out to us through our website. So let's go ahead and jump in with the Self-Prez 1 panel. Y'all know what to do. Subscribe so you don't miss any of these. We got three a week coming out right now. Follow us at Art of Growth on Instagram. And please write us a review on iTunes. It really helps people find this program and experience some of the growth and transformation so many of you have already been doing, which is an absolute service to the people around you. All right, let's get into it. All right, well, welcome everyone to the self-preservation type one panel. I am so excited to have you with me and uh, with Jim. We have been doing this and we're going through all of the types and all of the instincts as well. And we're, we're glutton for punishment. Up. Yes, we are. <laughs> and we're, and we're being punished because of it. It is, there's a lot of suffering right now going on. Um, scheduling wise, I love this moment right here where we yeah. get to hear from you and we're doing this because the instincts really add such a distinct flavor to the type. When the type is expressed through the instinct, as you'll hear uh, with the self-preservation one, the sexual one, and then the social one, there are differences that come out. And that's what we hope to provide, as well as kind of diving into some of the areas of the sort of neglected part, the, you know, the part of the instincts that we don't really do or don't like, and explore that a little bit as well. So, Again, welcome to each of you. Would you introduce yourself and uh, just tell us where you're from? Hi, my name is Lisa and I live in Eugene, Oregon. I'm Sandra and I uh, live over on the coast in Oregon, in Florence, Oregon. And my name is Debbie. I live in northern New Jersey. Wonderful. Well, welcome again. And uh, first question I'd like to dive into is related to the type one, the feature of the one, which is to be faultless, to be perfect, and need to do the right thing, right? And how that shows up in the realm of the self-preservation instinct. And so the first part of that is uh, health and wellness. Now, you may not relate entirely to that because, again, 
even when it's your dominant instinct, generally it's like two out of the three that most people have. That's sort of, you know, that's the part that I really relate to, but feel free to talk about that and how your type one need to be faultless, perfect to be right shows up through that. I can jump in again. This is one that is near and dear to my heart. Um, my need to get it right usually comes out through research. I will learn the biological way the body operates and then seek to meet its needs. So I need proper amount of sleep. I need the right equation of nutrients. I need the right amount of water in ounces. I need to get it right so that my body has everything it needs because my other um, instinctual uh, maybe compulsion is I need to guard my resources. So that all equates to energy. Mm. <laughs> and I really need enough energy to get through everything I need to get done. Mm. Well said. For me, the aspect of well-being is, I think, mostly in theory, just I have smaller children. And so I feel like I don't have a lot of time that I want to give to myself. But that research aspect, I spent countless hours researching. Forget it. When COVID hit, I was glued (laughs) to Google trying to figure out all the ways to prepare us as a family to be ready in case something happened. And for me, I think it really extends to my kids and thinking about what do they need? I just want to set them up so that when they go to college, when they leave my immediate home, that they are going to be set up for a pattern where they think about their health and they are taking care of themselves. And so a lot of my focus these days in terms of the well-being is my household and my my children and like the legacy that I leave them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. For my husband and I, we got really interested in making sure that we were taking good care of our health since we're both self-preses. And we, um, we got into a program where we really learned to use really good nutrition. I mean, and so we became almost fanatical about that. And it was a little bit stressful because we had to cook everything ourselves. You know, you can't just go out and find, you know, exactly what you need when you're trying to follow a super healthy diet. And so that's probably where it shows up the most for me is still following that kind of an eating plan. Yeah. Does the aspect of control for the type one show up in this space as well for you? Does it feel like this is a, you know, I want to make sure I'm controlling this aspect of my life? You know, for me, it's not, I need to control this, but it feels easy to control it. Interesting. When I determine, okay, you know, for food, I made a rule for myself. I need at least, at very least, five fresh vegetables per meal. And so once I make that rule, it feels easy to control that. Um, Mm. So I think I set up things that then become easy to control. Not that I feel like I have to control it. Maybe that's splitting hairs. I don't know. I I like how you're saying, Debbie, you're nodding your head up and down. What's going on for you? Yeah, I I mean, I think that 
like, it doesn't feel like a struggle for me. It is what it is. I'm setting this up and that's how I'm going to live now. (laughs) That's just, you know, I created this boundary for myself and that's just how it is. I think the feeling of like that control aspect implies that there's like a struggle, but for me, like, it doesn't feel like a struggle. It's just, it is just what it is. And it is just what it's going to be. Okay. That's helpful. (laughs) Sandra, what about you? Yeah. You know, I can relate to that for sure. I don't feel it as control at all. I mean, to me, it feels very much like it's just the way it needs to be. I mean, it just feels, you know, very comfortable. And that's kind of where I like to, you know, stay in that kind of zone. It's very helpful to hear that because I think that that gives us a window into the soul of the one where it would be more the opposite. Like if none of those things were happening where you didn't have, you couldn't have these sort of Mm -hmm. rules for yourself in place, then it would feel like, you know, life is out of control. Is that right? You're kind of nodding your heads up and down. Okay. So that's very helpful. So we've talked a little bit about health and wellness. And by the way, if anything else comes to mind in that space, even when we talk about the others, uh, please, please bring that up. Let's talk about the next one, which is resources and resource management. So when we think of resources, we think of things like not just the quality, the diet that is for the, for the health and well-being, but the, do we have enough food? Do we have enough supplies? Do we have a home? If you're in between, you're looking for a home that can create a little bit of extra anxiety. You know, do we have the the resources we need? And then the resource management around that, like, you know, maintaining, keeping those things in in proper working condition. That involves a little bit of know-how, you know, the practical know-how that a lot of self-pres types tend to have. Again, this is not universal in every aspect of every area of your life, right? So, but it tends to show up. So I'd love to hear from you in terms of the resource and, you know, where the type one shows up in that space. This is a a huge one for me. I think that's kind of where my self-pres lands the most is in resource management. I can remember as a a young girl uh, being very worried about survival you know, and, and not having any need to. I mean, I grew up in a middle-class family. We had plenty of money, you know, food wasn't an issue. Shelter wasn't an issue. But for me, I was really worried early on that I would not have enough money and that I would be on the street. I used to be bag ladies. You know, I, would, I was worried I was going to be a bag lady. I was totally worried about that. And that directed a lot of my behavior, even as a young girl. I made a decision early, early on that I needed to provide for my survival um, and that I needed a good job, you know, so I had to go to college (laughs) to get a good job. Um, So early on, way before I even got out of grade school, I had a plan to go to the right high school so that I could get into college, so that I could get a job that would be a very reliable, very solid job you know, that I could find work anywhere because I was so afraid of not having enough money and not having, you know, the ability to survive. Um, and so survivor was kind of like my, my shield, you know, I mean, it was like everywhere. It was like, I will survive this. And so, you know, it led me into a lot of paths. I mean, it led me into becoming a nurse because I knew that that would be a stable job But that, being a nurse, 
in that need to provide myself with security because I was only going to do that as a job. I really wanted to go on and study something totally different. I really wanted to get a PhD in philosophy, but I knew that I had to have some kind of income. So, so when I did that as a job, that changed my life because I had never been in touch with that, with the one-on-one or the sexual instinct. It had never, it had always been really squashed for me. I mean, I had friends in high school, but, you know, like my close friends and stuff, but I was never, you know, I never really followed that instinct too much because I kind of had in the back of my mind that that would take me away from my survival needs. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I became a nurse and I experienced what it was like to have this one-on-one energy and this ability to really give somebody something, you know, that, that like changed everything. So for me, it was kind of like my self-pres introduced me to my, you know, one-on-one and it made it feel like something I didn't want to ever lose, you know? So I became, I really loved it. I became in love with nursing and with being able to connect with people you know, one-on-one. And I think that almost all of my social instincts came through my nursing profession, really, for the most part, until I retired. And now uh, I think most of all my social connections come through related to Enneagram work. So, mm, There's so much richness to everything that you've just shared. And uh, I definitely want to come back to some of that when we get to the neglected and the neutral. And we'll talk about the sort of sequencing of the, of the uh, instincts. I really like how you talk about the, uh, at the beginning where even though you were raised in a family where financial resources were there, um, they were adequate for you, that you still felt that. And this is really insightful for a lot of people because we think that nearly everything that we experience as some kind of concern that we have is from the way we were raised, and yet this this instinct thing, <laughs> there's this type and this instinct thing, and it's a stubborn instinct because regardless of how you're raised, it still brings your attention to that. It still brings you to that place of, you know, making sure you have enough and the concern around that. So really insightful. I connect with that. I kind of joke sometimes I have one irrational fear and that is being homeless. Mm. And I also grew up middle class, you know, was all the, the physical needs were met nothing in my background, nobody in my family's ever been homeless, but it's my one irrational fear. And it does drive me. Um, You know, Joel, you said this may not consume every area of your life, this resource management, but I just kind of chuckle because it really does. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My time, I have time issues. Like I need to feel like more time is mine than what I give someone else. Like I need to make sure my time is used well. My energy, I've mentioned that, um, but finances, like I need to plan out, you know, six months, a year, let's go five years out, let's plan everything out. So it's a huge instinctual drive that really feels like it filters a lot. Mm. I connect with everything that you're saying too. I mean, as a young child, I had a tiny suitcase where I put emergency clothes, food, things that I would need just in case, just in case something happened, if there was a fire or there was some 
problem and I had to grab something and leave, I had my emergency suitcase. I think I was as young as six or seven. And till this day, I have a duffel bag in my, the trunk of my car that has blankets, Ritz crackers, extra clothes for the boys. I mean, it's just something within me that like what Lisa and Sandra are saying, I never experienced any risk of a lack of resources, but at the same time, I felt like I needed to be prepared because you just never know. And so I think it's less money for me and it's more just making sure we have enough things. Like when COVID hit, I was already stocked with things. Not that I ever expected there to be a global pandemic, but I've always had Lysol. I've always had my wipes. I've always had toilet tissue extra just because that's how I live is to have enough to make sure that we're okay for a while. This is so much the self-preservation instinct and it shows up across types that way. Oftentimes with that need to have extra and need to have enough and be prepared for anything that could come around the corner. This is also why they describe this self-preservation instinct as adding a little bit of anxiety to the type. So even if types aren't predisposed to that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit more of that because the attention goes to, well, self-preserving and making sure you have enough. Um, so yeah, that's really good. Very, very helpful. Let's move to the issue of criticism. So type ones are described as having this sort of inner critic and that tending to turn more inward than it does outward, but it can also manifest outward as well at times. And so wondering how that shows up as well, maybe more the inward sort of self-criticism in this domain, the self-preservation domain. So maybe talk about that with relation to health and wellness. It may not show up there, but whichever one, health, wellness, resource management, or the nest, the home. I don't really think of it as criticism, (laughs) at least for myself. And I never did think of any of this as criticism. I just always feel like I need to see things from all perspectives and I need to be, I like, I hate to say bettering myself. To me, it feels more like completing myself more. And it feels a little bit more like, well, I need a little bit more information here, or I need a little bit more of something here. And I will try to fill it in whatever way that I can. You know, when I, when I hear descriptions of ones and I hear words like perfectionism. It doesn't feel like that. It doesn't feel burdensome at all. It doesn't feel like I'm criticizing myself. I just feel the need to be more complete in, in everything. And I guess it's that aspect of like the resources, right? Like I just feel like I just need to be whole, more whole in whatever area it is that I'm, I'm focusing on at that moment. And I never thought of it as criticism until I sort of, sort of started reading some of the literature, like hearing other people say ones can be hypercritical. And I remember the moment a good friend of mine told me that I was being hypercritical of a project that she was working on. And it just like pierced my heart because Mm. that word just sounds so awful. Mm. And for me, I was like, 
I think I just, I wanted her to experience as much success as she could. And the fact that she received it as criticism was alarming for, I mean, I remember the day I remember like the moment she said it because it was so like jarring for me to hear those words. And I'm sure other people have thought that of me before, but just have never said it, which is fine. But like, it doesn't feel like that at all. And I think that I live in the kind of like this, like my insides are moving constantly because there's like, I just want more, or I just want to know that I have the completeness of something. And I know we didn't really talk about the nesting, but what was interesting to me is that I want my home to be simple. And I think I want my home to reflect what I want my inner life to look like because it's just, I need like a balance. So when I'm at home, I can't listen to music. I don't like the extra noise because I spend my whole day in like noise, right? Like just this inner thing that's happening. And so I want my home and I'm really into gardening. I want it to reflect peace and something like restorative because of that that movement that's happening inside. This is so good. Thank you for doing, for saying what you said. All all of everything you just said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like so good. There's a million things I want to dive into. And if we have time, I will, because I want to go there. Like (laughs) what you're saying there is so good because it speaks to uh, something that is oftentimes. And when I say criticism, it's like, whenever I talk about anything, whether it's you need to be strong as an eight, It's done with the full understanding that is not the way it's always going to be experienced. And there's something deeper underneath. For you as a one, the gap in translation between what you feel in your heart and sometimes what comes out is where that sometimes happens, right? There's a gap occasionally. It's not reflecting what's on your heart. Your desire is to improve and make the world a better place, including yourself. And so there's a beauty to that. There's a wonder to that. So thank you for saying that part. Um, and then in terms of the nesting, I saw a lot, I saw your heads nodding. So I want to hear from you, Sandra and Lisa, as to so many juicy things. Like it has to reflect myself, my inner space. And I also want it to be a place of peace. And I hear this from other ones. They seek these sanctuaries of peace where it's like I'm not being pulled into doing something or I'm not, there's nothing to fix or solve here. I can just be away from all of that. So I don't want to direct anything here. Just like what's popping for both you, Lisa and Sandra. I um, also resonate with that moment of realization that the rest of the world interprets me as critical and it broke my heart. I have understood it as a keen capacity to see potential (laughs) And I, I vividly see the difference between what is observable in reality and the potential that it could have. And I, I see that gap and I need to fill that gap. I really need to fill that gap. I need the best possible from myself. I need the best possible from the other person. I mean, don't you want to be the best you? <laughs> let, let me help you. <laughs> Yeah, And it, it wells up from my gut. Like I can feel it right now. Like I want that beautiful potential world. I can mm. taste it and feel it. Mm. And let's get there together. And let me point out all the ways we're not there. <laughs> Cause mm. you know, you got to start where you are and build. Right. So we need to have a good understanding of where we are. 
I can tell you everything is wrong <laughs> for the purpose of getting better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it just so physically feels like every fiber of my being. Yeah. And then, I mean, it, and it does come into my home because I see the world in a lot of its chaos and I need my home to be my sanctuary. It has to be where everything is in its place and makes sense and is beautiful and aesthetic and serene and calming. And I notice if the coffee table, the angle got shifted a little bit and I have to put it back. You know, mm. the classic walk into someone's home and the picture is a little off. I'll be like, you know, just up the edge a little bit. <laughs> I really need my home to be that space so I can let down my guard uh, and relax. Mm. As you're talking, it's like, that was deep. I felt that like right here, like the mm. sort of disruption of things out of order. Like there's a disruption yeah. that happens inside you. Yeah. So yeah. I can feel that right now as you're talking. So yeah. that's a great job of bringing me into that space of what that might feel like for you as a one. Well, and it's really hard to draw that distinction and boundary between, okay, that's just the world out there. It's chaotic because I feel it. So then I feel that disruption. Mm. And so... Wow. I need to then make the world that is actually mine the way I want it. Hmm. It's not a preference. It's a need. It's a, hmm. it's a, it feels survival level. So what is it like when that need is not it's met? It's not good. <laughs> I get really anxious. I have a story. I can give you a quick example. It was Christmas time and I had, decorated, you know, fall comes down and Christmas comes out. And I had a pile mm. of things that were kind of, okay, I'm done with this. This is kind of goodwill giveaway pile. And my poor husband doesn't get a lot of opportunity to decorate, you know, cause it's so critical to me, but he really liked this thing in this giveaway pile. So he put it out on the entryway table and it just didn't go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can see where this oh, is man. going. Right? This is already getting and, awkward no. for me. <laughs> yeah, I was consciously aware. This is so stupid. This is so little, so inconsequential. Like, why is this such a big deal? I mean, the expression on his face was the same. Cause I'm like, that can't go there. <laughs> and I mean, just to qualify it because I'm a one and I need to qualify things. I work as a counselor in a school and, I got a really threatening, concerning letter from a student and other teachers were saying, this is a safety concern. We need to deal with this. So my outside world mm. got really disrupted mm -hmm. and it, it made my inside world extra critical that I had to have everything in place. So there's a context to it, yeah. but it really highlights that need for me. Wow. The awareness of that is just really beautiful because what we talk about it is going from, um, in our work, we talk about going from being on automatic mode to being intentional. And in order to do that, you have to be able to make these connections. So you were able to spot in that moment, oh, this energy that's coming up in me, the one energy that's wanting to be like, this does not go there. This is not okay. You're not just saying this is not okay. You're understanding that it's existing in a larger context. So that's really important. And really neat that you're experiencing that. Sandra. that. You know, um, I was in a training with Helen Palmer. I think you might have been involved in that, Joel. I don't know. Um, but 
she was talking about ones and she was talking about, you know, the obsessive compulsive piece, you know, not the piece that makes you need to have medication or anything like that. Just the piece that keeps you wanting things to be a certain way. When she talked about that, boy, that opened my eyes up because that is what I do a lot. I also have like a certain way that I think that things feel the best, you know? So I think it should, that they should be done that way just because they feel the best for me and I need to do it that way. Does not mean that other people have to do it that way. What it might actually mean, and I will rat on myself with this, is that I might actually just go behind them very quietly and fix it. So so if my husband loads the dishwasher and I don't really think that's the way it should have been loaded, I won't say anything. I'm just going to fix it. But I really saw that after I heard Helen talk about that. I really saw that, you know, that I had that kind of low level thing happening all the time. And that I had to kind of cut myself slack for it. Because I think kind of what, like, what, what you were saying, Lisa, is that it relates to something like the anxiety that's happening, you know, and that I like to use that to help me kind of settle anxiety. And so I think that's with my home. I, I like it real simple. I like it, you know, easy. Um, but I will tell you that probably another piece that plays into that is that I'm, I also... As a one, I still do have this kind of, it's not necessarily a fear, but I don't like to be judged. And I do feel, you know, that if somebody comes into my house and it's not, you know, perfectly clean, I mean, I'm talking, you know, totally dusted, totally vacuumed, everything put away. You know, if my house isn't totally clean, I don't really want them to see that. You know, I mean, I want them to see my house in a really good state. And so that's kind of drives some of my behavior, which I see. I mean, and I, I look at, and I actually cut myself some slack over, you know, <laughs> um, I, I let it happen. I look a lot because something that was said really caught my attention for the fact that I rely a lot on the virtue of serenity. And I really call upon that. I mean, I, I really call on that. And I also use a lot about the law of perfection, you know, the the holy laws, the holy ideas, you know, the idea of holy perfection. I really call upon that too and really look at, you know, that this is all okay the way it is. And I think that I've had some hard lessons, you know, in that because I had a, a health problem that really reduced me to like zero. I mean, I had to have, be taken care of, uh, literally. I was a 40-year-old, and I had to have my mom and dad, because I wasn't married at that time. I, I had been divorced. I had to have them come and actually take care of me. They had to take care of my house and everything. And so I kind of learned, and it was after I'd already been exposed to the Enneagram, so I'd done a lot of work already with the Enneagram, and I kind of just learned that I would be held that I was held by, by the universe, you know, that I was actually, that I didn't have to manage it all myself, that somebody else would come and help take care of all of it, mm. you know? Um, and so that was such a blessing for me. That's carried me through a lot. Mm. That's so beautiful. It does take sometimes these you know, sort of points of crises for us to, 
to learn these deeper lessons, you know, and, and that's what you're describing there happening for you and calling on that piece. You know, we've said at the Art of Growth, we've said your starting point has to shift because we're all starting from a place of deficit, all types. We all start from a place of there's something not quite right, you know. So if we were to go through all the types, it would be right here, the type one. There's I'm not good enough, you know, for a type three, I'm not successful enough, you know, for a type nine, I don't have peace or I don't have connection. You know, there's, there's, that's the starting point. And you're flipping it by calling on peace by saying, I already, I can already have peace. I can have peace right now. It's not something that's off in the future. That's off when I finally have everything under control and everything, everything is in its proper order and proper place. Then I can finally rest. It's no, I can have that now. I can have it in this moment. So, oh man, so good. I could talk to you forever. Uh, let's, let's go to the next, um, the next one, which is in the order of the instincts. Sometimes there's one that we call the neutral or this one that's second. So in the order, it's what, you know, there's three instincts, one, two, three, dominant is the first. The second is the one that we don't have a problem with, but it's not one that we live from. And then there's a third one that's more of the one that creates more problems for us. So for each of you, which one is your second? Which one's that sort of neutral one? And in what ways do you use it? My second is definitely the one-to-one sexual instinct. It's a really close second. There's not a large gap between my first and second. And then there's a large gap (laughs) between my third. But for me, it's how I connect with the world. It is my connection to to outside, what's going on inside. So I'm definitely a one-on-one let's go deep, can't do the small talk, let's talk about how the universe works and, you know, be authentic. So it it feels very natural for me. Debbie, Sandra? My second one is definitely one-on-one or the sexual instinct. And it's almost, um, I like that intensity of that instinct, you know, and I, and I actually crave that, you know, being on one-on-one in a really deep space, you know, talking about things that are very important, not superficial. And I think that um, the other piece of that, which I alluded to before, but I, I really think that being a nurse did something with that one-on-one with me that like just really highlighted it and made it really feel like I was an instrument that I could connect on that level with someone. And I, and I just loved that. And I still love that. And I, you know, I have that in certain situations with people. Mm. I like the self-preservation domain, which is, you know, nursing and hospitals and, and that's the domain. That's a place of, of relative comfort for you. And you're able to move into and bring in some of the sexual energy in that space. It's really, really good. Debbie? So earlier today, I emailed Joel because I, I had like a moment of panic because I couldn't quite figure out what was my neutral. <laughs> On the test, it came out that my social was the neutral and that the sexual was the repressed one, right? But what was bothering me enough to email Joel today was that I was wondering if maybe the sexual, which is the one that bothers me about like when I explore that area was, was a little bit more at the forefront than social was. 
right? I, I couldn't really quite distinguish. And I think a lot of it has to do with my current like life happenings and like what I'm being challenged to move towards. But I, I would say that the one that feels like neutral for me is social. And, um, I will occasionally sort of explore this idea of like my contribution to the world. It's interesting. Sandra and Lisa, I'm a speech language pathologist in the school. We all have pretty similar kind of professions. And I do feel that aspect of like, I believe in the public school system. This is my contribution to the world to give (laughs) these children a voice, you know, (laughs) and I Mm -hmm. have that element to my instinct. But I think that that the one that really has like kind of energy behind it is the, the one-on-one sexual. And I think maybe that's because it's repressed, Mm -hmm. right? Am I sort of reading that right? I think you're reading it very well. And I don't get too hung up on, is it your first, is it your second, is it your third? We're just going with that as, as just a a tool to kind of help explore deep more deeply. The point is that there is one that creates that sort of reaction within us. And sometimes we don't even notice it does. I've had people tell me, I didn't even notice it did mm-hmm. until you started talking about it. And now we're talking about it and I'm realizing I have visceral feelings around this. And uh, so that's yeah. a helpful indication that like, oh yeah, this one causes me trouble. The point is not to keep it in its like third and keep it out of your life. The point is to recognize, oh, maybe there's something here, right? So all the problems in our lives they become teachers to us. They're there to teach something. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So say more about that. So let's move to that third one, that neglected or oppressed one. So if you use the sexual, you said, and it creates that sort of like reaction. Could you say more about that? Like, Yeah. So like Sandra, I feel like I have that one-to-one with the kids that I work with. And to me, that feels really good. I find that um, what happens and what I've noticed happens, I know some of that like one-to-one sexual, it's not just always towards people, right? That fusion aspect, it's toward a value or an idea. And I have found myself getting really fused with an idea. So I used to be a little bit more involved with church and I would see something like that gap that we were talking about. And I would become fused with that and it needed to be filled. And so what would happen would be that I'd start talking to people and then it would be interpreted as somehow that I was self-promoting or, or something that people weren't getting the point. And I felt this sort of like, it what felt like unhealthy connection to this idea that people needed to see. And so because I've uh, experienced some negative reinforcement with that, I shut that aspect of myself down because it feels like, oh, well, you shouldn't do that, right? That's not good. That's not what people, like, that's not the way to drive change, right? So I think I'm okay with that aspect of, you know, working with my kids and really like getting to a place where we're have a relationship where I can, you know, change their voice or give them voice. I think that's really important and very, you know, maybe noble, or I don't know the right word for it, but I think when it's that I'm fused with an idea or a value, it feels negative. And it makes me feel that negative kind of emotion towards it. Yeah. 
Good. Well, thank you. If I were doing a coaching really session good. with you, I'd press in more into that space and say, yeah, that's, that tends <laughs> to be true for all of us, that there's even, even in our, our dominant instinct, if we get deeply wounded in that place, there's a good chance we might turn that off for a while or just um, find it in a different arena, you know, and that seems to be something that's happened for you there, um, that uh, your drive to improve, to make things better, which is a type one gift for the world. You know, in all our gifts, we need to obviously learn. Sometimes the way we use our gifts, we learn, we grow through that so that it's able to be received more by the world around us. But nonetheless, it's a gift. It's a gift that's beautiful and that the world needs. So I appreciate you, you sharing that. Lisa, Sandra, what are your thoughts? So social is my, definitely my neglected instinct. And I think it is in response to being self-preservational and needing to gauge my resources, particularly my energy level. I feel like I can tell, you know, if my eyes were closed and a person enters the room, I can feel their energy. So like when there's more than two or three people in a setting, I, I literally feel energy getting sucked out of me. And it comes with this belief that I need to somehow anticipate and meet all of their needs. And what if I can't? Like, what if it takes too much out of me? And what if I get it wrong? And it's just draining. And I couple that with, you know, on a global scale, I was also that kid who depressed might be too strong, but definitely melancholy around the fact that, you know, there were kids on the other side of the planet starving. And I, mm. I felt so overwhelmed by that because I, I was powerless. I couldn't do anything about it. But I, one-on-one, I can have an impact. I can have the time and space to have a conversation and make sure there's clarity and they understand the message I'm trying to send. And I can really make sure I understand their message. Like there's time and space and energy for that one-on-one. Yeah. And, you know, I can, I can go take a, a hamburger to one homeless person. I can do that. Yeah, but on a, on a grand scale, it just shuts me down because I feel so, there's not enough, I don't have enough to, yeah. to have an impact at a, a larger scale. You know, you make a lot of sense of a friend of mine that I see do this sort of like, I know he's a one and I'm now thinking there's a likelihood that he's a self-pressed one based on how a lot of what you're all three of you are saying, but there's this like leaning into some social issues and like speaking and trying to fix it. And then, and then the exhaustion from that and pulling back and like disappearing and, you know, from the social space, uh, the media and stuff, and then back into social media and then trying to solve these books. And in conversations, that's what I've heard from this individual is like, you feel so overwhelmed by all the problems that you see and the responsibility to do something about it, but it can be too much. And then you just peter out. So that's, that's uh, very helpful. And I appreciate you sharing that. It does cause a little bit of tension because I feel like the, the good person would go to, you know, those social fundraising events for homeless people, for example, or, you know, abuse children or, you know, like these big global project things. And I just know for my own boundaries, I just, I, it's not a good space for me because I will get so overwhelmed, but then that triggers the, Ooh, am I a bad person? (laughs) You know, you're, you're, you're right on. This is what happens for all types. Your instinct matching up with your type 
creates some wonderful things, but it also creates internal tension sometimes because the type one, so if, you, if we talk to social ones, they are going to be involved in the social sphere and we're going to be talking to them about that. And for them, that is their place of comfort, but there's an area of neglect. And so what happens oftentimes with these instincts is we create value systems around, or values around them. So we'll have, you know, the value around it is, you know, this is what we should be doing. We should be taking care of these yeah, issues. Good. But then sometimes being the recipient of that as well, of the guilt of not being like another instinct, like I should mm -hmm. be more able to fuse and have these deep conversations with people, or I should be able to do all of this, uh, you know, social stuff and have the larger perspective and be able to handle a lot of people's energy. And so I think it's just to recognize, like, if you talk to social instinct people, they get their own weaknesses that they're struggling with, that they're saying, man, I don't have the capacity to do some of the self-pressed stuff and it is killing me. And I feel so... You know, so as a sexual type, I know this from me. I don't look at self-pressed people as selfish or as like one down. I actually look right. at them as far more responsible in so many areas that I wish I was more responsible in. And I realize like I'm coming up short because I don't have the energy for that space. I have plenty of energy for the sexual stuff, but not for the self-pressed stuff, right? And social types will say the same thing. I got plenty of energy. I was talking to social one who was saying, man, I have to tell you, self-pressed ones, they, out, they wear me out with their work. Like they are much harder workers. <laughs> like I just, I do because I have to. I don't, I don't really want to. And they admire that. So I think it's just, we're all at the same place, just recognizing, yeah, we're going to deal with some of this guilt around that, but to give ourselves some grace to say, hey, this is my domain. And now integrate the other instincts so that we have greater wisdom so that we can even do better not maybe more, but even more intelligence in that dominant center. And I think that the other two want to help increase the intelligence of that instinct as well. So, uh, Sandra, what are your, what's your request? And uh, talk to me about that. <laughs> Social is definitely my instinct that stacks the lowest. And there's two things I think going on with it. One thing I think is that there is still that threat of judgment, you know, that if I'm in a, a big group of people, you know, that they're, that I'm somehow being, you know, looked at and evaluated and maybe I'm not up to par with the rest of them. I mean, I, I, there's some kind of element of that. I think the place where I really like kind of shine in social is if, it, if there is a cause, you know, I mean, if I can get behind a cause, like I'm going to push, you know, for the better, you know, for better treatment of patients, better treatment of nurses, you know, better education of people, period. But I think that, um, mm. yeah, so here's the problem with it. Because I am a one, you can put me in a group and then I am doing like way too much work. I mean, I'll take over all the work, you know, I mean, you want to give me work. I mean, and people do, I mean, I think they see that I'm going to take it. So they just, it piles on. And so I have actually made a very conscious decision um, as I've gotten older, you know, to protect my time. And I, a lot of times I avoid going into a group situation because I don't want to start taking over work because it's very hard for me to like just be become one of the, you know, people that are just involved in the group. 
I, for some weird reason, think that I have, I have a responsibility, you know, to start doing stuff. Um, I have been in some small social groups that I really have enjoyed, like where, you know, book clubs where I can just participate, you know, just as part of the group. And that I love because I have no responsibility for anything, you know, <laughs> but, but I can just enjoy it. That's kind of where I go with social. Yeah, very good. And maybe one last comment from each of you. How are you growing in that, in your, your repressed or neglected instinct? I'll say why, how I'm growing. And I have to give my husband kudos, you know, because he and I both work together in our Enneagram work. And we have been doing a lot of, uh, you know, meetings with people, groups and things like that, where I think that's where my social has really, mm. you know, has really shined and has, um, you know, I, I feel like I can be of service, but not, I, I don't feel overwhelmed, mm. you know. I like that you have managed yeah. to make the social serve your self-preservation and not the other way around where you lose yourself, you know, in the social sphere and then you're overwhelmed by that. So that's, yeah. that's really, really good. Yeah. I honestly don't know how to answer that just given the, the current you know, situation where we need to be isolated. I love it. <laughs> um, it just takes anything at this point. Right? Takes right. the whole issue off the table. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm relatively new to my town, so I don't have a large community built yet. Previously. I feel like it wasn't as much of an issue because I was a half marathon coach and I built a training program and grew it to several hundred women. And we kind of like Sandra said, if there's a cause and if I have a role in the cause that feels better, feels like I can have a channel for that impact. But um, yeah, right now, I don't know. It may be as simple as, you know, again, we think of social as very complex. We're not even scratching the surface of what the social instinct is because it involves a whole lot more than I'm a part of a large group or am I part of a group of some sort it involves things like, you know, mm -hmm. reaching out to old friends or to friend or to extended family and people like that. And just checking in, how are you doing, you know, and having those touch points. Those are also aspects of the social instinct that I know I've grown in and need to grow, continue to grow in. It's very helpful for me when I do that is just doing that deliberately like hey check in on this person and and so that's been a wonderful touch point it's actually built or strengthened relationships that i have and allowed my sexual energy sometimes to have its yayas you know it gets excited when someone goes hey let's talk and we have you know we have a, a deep conversation so it's things like that as well that uh can be a bit broader than than just being you know thinking just groups but yeah no i appreciate where you are and where you are is where you are and grace again to yeah. all of us as, as we're exploring this. Debbie. Mm -hmm. um, well, several years ago, I kind of went through this really like traumatic time in my life and I felt so stuck. I felt so stagnant and I was just there. I, I couldn't get myself out and I called you Joel. <laughs> and I think like, you know, I kind of just explored this, aspect of, of risk, what felt like risk, probably to the rest of the world, it's not risky, 
for what felt like for me, like I needed to move. Right. And I'm a very risk averse person, but I needed to move Mm. and I couldn't be where I was. And so I Mm. just kind of what felt like mindlessly, like started just making some decisions in my life. I applied for a doctoral program and I'm in it right now. And I just needed something that was going to get me unstuck. And so in that way, I think I've grown to take more risks or what feels like risks for me. And, um, it's clumsy. It feels very clumsy, but I feel like I'm sort of dislodged a bit and finding my way back into like settling into like a new kind of place that feels like home for me, like internally. Mm. But I think that, you know, that movement was just, it was absolutely necessary for my life. And I just um, have become a little bit more comfortable with that idea of like taking that next step, you know? No, and, and you're bringing up a really good, I think making a really good point about, just to be clear, your your uh, repressed or neglected instinct is the sexual instinct. Right. And so you're describing risk as one of the components of that. And when we have pushed the self-pres too far and too long, there comes a moment where then the sexual energy just has to help us to change a lot. And then it's disruptive <laughs> and it can last longer than it should. And so it's just like, a, it's, it, these are all wonderful lessons to us. Like in what way can I be a bit more intentional about bringing the sexual energy on a little earlier so that I don't have right. these massively disruptive experiences in my life, but you're there and you're, you're coming back and, you know, more and more back to that, again, the place of your, your strength and your, of a place where you're more naturally suited for, and that's the self-preservation sphere. And so that's where you, it sounds like you're coming back to that and that's good. Yeah. Well, look, you have been wonderful. All three of you have done an incredible job Mm -hmm. of articulating, expressing, opening up, being transparent with us. And um, I can't thank you enough for that. That's a a gift to me and a gift to our listeners. And so I just want to express a huge thanks to each of you for being on this Self-Prez Type 1 podcast. Totally. What you've just given is an absolute gift because people are going to learn so much, uh, both about the one, about the self-pres, about how they work together. Like this is a deep dive and y'all took what it was a deep dive and you took it deeper. And so we are hugely thankful for being authentic to your journey, where you are at this point in time, what it's like to move through it because you are moving and that movement is a beautiful thing. So Thank you so much, and we will talk to you again. Bye. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. You can join us tomorrow for the Sexual One panel. It has just been so fascinating to see how differently the same type can show up with these instincts. This has been a game changer for us, and we hope you are enjoying learning alongside with us as we continue to stay in the tradition of the Enneagram, which is based on self-reporting. It's not about putting anyone in a box, but to show how we are our own unique expression of the type and these tools and structures that have been based on self-reporting can really help us navigate our own growth so much better as we move from being on default mode, which most people live in, 
to living our lives by intention and design because we see our patterns and we find a way to get out of it. So please take the instincts test at theartofgrowth.org. It'll help you a lot to understand your stack and where you are needing to move forward. If you found one of these episodes particularly helpful, please share it in your own social media. And and if you tag us in it on Instagram, we often share your tags. That's a main part of our stories that we use. And that's uh, that's just a great thing. Uh, it's always such an honor to see that. So this week, may you lean into care if you need a bit of that for yourself. May you honor you as the starting point, but not the ending point. May you develop things in you so that you can be expanded, so that you can serve the world around you in a greater, more positive, powerful way. Honor yourself as the only starting point you honestly have so that you can look out, so you can be of service, so you can have an impact on the world around you. Grace and growth, my friends.